This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello, and welcome to the June 17th, 2022 episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. A couple of weeks ago, we saw the culmination of what, in my opinion, was the most ill-advised publicity stunt in our sport. I'm referring, of course, to the Sub-7, Sub-8 event, in which successive replacement athletes, aside from Christian Blumenfeld, subbed in for one another after their predecessors came up lame, or alternatively, maybe they just realized how lame the whole idea was and decided they had better things to do with their time. Okay, maybe you think that's a bit harsh, but I have to say, I never understood why this was a thing, and more importantly, why I should care. There is no doubt that in sport, there are various time barriers that are ingrained in the collective imagination. The four-minute mile, the 10-second 100 meters, the two-hour marathon, all of those were thought at some point to be mythical numbers that potentially could never be broken because of the limits of human physiology. But, with advances in science and technology and training know-how, each has fallen. And while the two-hour marathon was admittedly more of a spectacle than anything else, it still garnered significant attention and enthusiasm from a public who could very much understand the significance of that number and what it really meant. Now, did you sense the same enthusiasm for the Sub-7, Sub-8 project? Of course not. I mean, even among triathletes, there felt as if there was a collective shrugging of shoulders and uh, almost who really cares attitude about the whole thing. And it isn't really that hard to understand why. Our sport is much less about beating the clock than it is about beating your competitors and the course that you are all racing on. Time records are effectively meaningless in a sport where course maps change frequently and individual courses vary so much from fairly flat to hilly to mountainous. Triathlon, especially at the long distance, is also a very independent sport, and this whole sub-7, sub-8 project is ignoring that, using pacers and allowing drafting. It made the entire enterprise so completely alien from an actual Ironman that it's completely understandable that the results mean essentially nothing. And, put it into perspective, Laura Phillip on the exact same weekend raced 818 in an actual event where she had no pacers, no drafting, and was on an actual course. And in my mind, her time and her effort was significantly more impressive than anything that was going on in this silliness of the sub-7, sub-8. Now listen, I am not opposed to spectacle, and I'm certainly not opposed to exhibition-type events that can heighten awareness and bring people into triathlon, but this was really not it. Why am I the only one who seems to have noticed the incredible popularity and excitement of the mixed relay at the Olympics? How is it possible that no one is trying to replicate something like that for a 70.3 distance and make that an exhibition? I just don't understand the machinations and thought processes involved in coming up with these events like Sub-7, Sub-8 that garner little to no interest and will do nothing for our sport in terms of increasing participation. What's next? A Sub-3, 3.5 for the 70.3 distance? If so, I guess the only good thing could be if they did that is that we wouldn't have to care about that one half as much or for half as long. On the show today, I look at some interesting new research that investigates the relationship between how much and what an endurance athlete eats, and whether or not that then relates to the development of the dreaded gastrointestinal distress that so many of us experience during an event. In the same study, the authors also try to prove that the cause of all of our GI symptoms is related to injury and inflammation of your gut. So what did they find? Well, I'll give you all the details and discuss the real-world implications with a special guest, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm really excited to bring to you an interview with my dear friend and coaching colleague at Life Sport Coaching, Juliet Hockman. Juliet was an Olympic rower for the women's eight at the Olympic Games in Seoul, Korea. 
And that isn't the even the most imp- interesting thing that she's done in her life. Along with some incredible pursuits around the world, doing things we can all only aspire to, Juliet is also a world champion in two multi-sport disciplines and is going for a third this summer. She joins me to talk about a lot of this and how she's been so successful in so many things, and that's coming up a bit later, and it's a conversation I know that you will enjoy. Before all of that, I want to take my customary moment to remind you of the amazing benefits that await you if you decide to become a Patreon supporter of this podcast, like Stephanie Van Beber, who I had the great privilege of meeting when I was recently participating in the Virginia 70.3 race. Over at my Patreon site, www.patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast, you will see that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to a private feed on which there are bonus episodes with the likes of Dee Dee Griesbauer, Sky Munch, Joe Friel, and many more. And now, while supplies last, for those who sign up at the $10 a month level, I have a pretty cool Boco Tridoc Podcast running hat to send to you as a thank you gift. I hope that you'll take a look and think about signing up. Your support means the world to me and helps defray the cost of keeping this podcast going. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, I thank you so much just for considering. Nutrition for training and racing is a popular subject for discussion amongst triathletes on message boards related to specific races, and based on what I continue to read in the responses to some of the common questions, remains a subject that is imbued with a lot of misunderstanding. I've talked a lot about nutrition on this podcast and will continue to do so in future episodes. In fact, we're in the preliminary stages of putting together an entire nutrition-based episode, so stay tuned for that. But what I want to talk about today is something else that is frequently talked about on those same message boards, usually after an event, and also relates to nutrition, specifically to how people have trouble getting nutrition in and keeping it down. I'm speaking now of gastrointestinal upset, a common complaint amongst triathletes, and something that can undo even the best thought-out nutrition plan and really undo months of training. I've discussed this subject before to some extent as well. You may recall my examination of how anxiety can influence the gut and bring on GI distress. I've also talked about how different types of nutrients can play a role in this regard. Well, recently I came across an interesting study that attempted to tease out the how and why of GI distress and its relation to what athletes consume during exercise. And the results, while not particularly earth-shattering, are interesting all the same and I think help inform this topic more. The paper was a collaboration between researchers in the Netherlands, Norway, and the United States, and looked at ultramarathon runners participating in a 60-kilometer race. The researchers were interested specifically in determining how frequently these athletes complained of GI distress during the event, and whether or not the type and amount of nutrition being taken in had any impact on the frequency and severity of those symptoms. In addition, the scientists involved hypothesized a specific biological premise by which they believed GI distress arises in athletes, and they set out to see if they could find evidence that would either prove or disprove their hypothesis. You see, to date, there have been many reasons postulated as to why endurance athletes develop GI symptoms, but no one has ever really been able to prove conclusively the exact mechanism behind what's going on. Uh, They only see the after effects. These authors believe that during exercise, blood flow is diverted away from the organs of the GI tract, and as a result of that, there's a decreased delivery of oxygen and nutrients to the cells that have very high metabolic needs. And this then results in inflammation and even injury that in turn can cause symptoms resulting in an inability to continue to take on further nutrition. They set out to try and prove this by measuring markers of inflammation taken from the blood of the runners obtained before and after the event, looking for some generic markers of inflammation that can be present whenever there's an inflammatory process anywhere in the body, and for levels of a marker very specific to inflammation in the GI tract. Intestinal fatty acid binding protein, or IFABP, is a marker in the blood that shows up in very specific conditions of inflammation and damage to the organs and tissues of the GI tract alone. By looking for this very specific markers, the authors then hoped to show that GI tract injury was occurring, and when it did, this was the cause of GI symptoms. So what did they find? Well, there were only 33 athletes in the study, so a pretty small study, and 28 of them were male, and nearly three-quarters of them reported experiencing some symptoms of GI distress. 
So the generalizability of this study is going to be a little bit questionable because it's so small and it was pretty much all men. Now, the symptoms and the distress that these uh, athletes reported could have been anything from nausea to abdominal pain to diarrhea. While so many experienced symptoms, very few of the athletes reported these as being particularly severe. In fact, on a 10-point scale of severity, with 10 being the worst, the average score was only 1.9, so not exactly anywhere near debilitating. Still, the authors did report that most of these athletes, even with fairly low severity of symptoms, were impaired in their ability to continue to take in nutrition. As to the markers of inflammation, blood samples taken before and after the event did show that nonspecific markers of inflammation did rise. But this tended to be true whether or not an athlete suffered GI distress of any kind or severity. And this is kind of in keeping with what we know about inflammation in the setting of high intensity and prolonged duration exercise. We tend to see an increase in these kinds of inflammatory markers. Now, the IFABP marker, the marker that is specific to gastrointestinal organs, those didn't increase, even in those athletes with the worst symptoms. So gut-specific injury and inflammation did not appear to be the mechanism by which these symptoms arose. The one thing that was associated with symptoms was the amount of nutrition taken during the event. In fact, there was an inverse relationship in this regard. That is to say, those athletes that took the most nutrition, and especially when that nutrition was in the form of carbohydrates, experienced the fewest and the least severe symptoms. The reason for this appeared to be that when carbohydrates were being ingested, this improved blood flow to the gut through various mechanisms and prevented many of the symptoms associated with low flow states. Some other research can be added to this paper to give additional insight to the scope of the issue. While the first study I discussed had very few women, many other authors have pointed out that women may have a greater predisposition for GI distress than men do because of hormonal differences and how they might impact the autonomic nervous system, as this is another popular theory for why GI distress occurs in athletes. Put simply, this theory posits that an imbalance between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone in the autonomic nervous system can have significant impact on GI motility and function. During intense exercise, such an imbalance is already present, where sympathetic tone is far in excess of parasympathetic tone. And the female sex hormones, well, they might further exacerbate this. And this would help to explain why observational studies have reported not just that GI distress is higher in women than in men, but also that it's much less frequent in older women who are postmenopausal than younger women, giving credence to this idea that the sex hormones may be playing a role here. However, this theory hasn't been robustly evaluated, as pointed out nicely in a 2019 study that I came across that evaluated the limited data available on this subject. In that paper, nine different studies were pulled together in which five showed a higher prevalence of GI symptoms in women, three showed no difference between men and women, and one actually showed a higher prevalence in men. So clearly, not exactly a slam dunk here. Nonetheless, the hypothesis remains important and I believe further research would go a long way to answering whether or not the answer is that women do, in fact, have more symptoms than men, and if the sex hormones play a role. Another really interesting study from this year looked at competitors in a 24-hour ultramarathon, one in which competitors completed a 1.5-kilometer loop repeatedly. And so they had access to fluids and nutrition very frequently, and the researchers had access to the athletes very frequently. The authors of this study were then able to very accurately monitor and record the athlete's nutritional intake and survey them pretty frequently about GI symptoms. What they found was that as time wore on, athletes' pace and nutrition intake both decreased, though it was unclear if this was related or merely an association. Once again, a large proportion of athletes suffered from some kind of GI symptoms, but again, those symptoms were not significantly bad enough that they had to stop. So in this case, the athletes again said that in many cases, those symptoms did result in their not being able to continue to feed. One final study to remark on comes from back in 2017, in which the authors conducted a systematic review of the available literature published to that date and made some overarching conclusions based on what they found within. First, they noted that the magnitude of the intensity of effort plays a major role in whether or not an athlete will have GI symptoms. Up to about 60% of VO2 max, or 60% of your maximum effort, it is unusual for GI symptoms to arise. But once your effort exceeds that threshold, blood flow then tends to shunt away from the gut, and problems can then begin to develop. 
A second conclusion related to the types of food being consumed. The intake of excessive protein or fat or fermentable sugars can alter the microbiome and impact race day GI nutrition and function and the development of symptoms. So this relates less to what you're taking in during the race and more to what you're taking in around the race, so in your regular diet. Taken in sum, the authors of all of these studies had some pretty similar conclusions, and I want to emphasize them here and now because I think they are important and should really inform the nutrition plan for all athletes. First, nutrition plans need to be tailored to the individual and potentially in consultation with a professional. They should be practiced and then implemented during the event in exactly the same way. Second, carbohydrates are the best fuel source for endurance activities. This is something you've heard me say repeatedly, and I'm saying it again. Not just because they are efficiently metabolized and a preferred cellular fuel, but also because they can actually mitigate the onset of GI distress. Third, intensity of effort plays a big role in the development of GI symptoms. If you begin to experience them during a race, one thing you can do is back off on your level of effort, wait till the symptoms abate, and then try pushing it again. And last, women may have a higher propensity of developing GI symptoms than do men, but this isn't proven yet and should only be taken as a cautionary statement. And again, there's going to be a lot of individual variability. Now, one thing that was not addressed in any of the studies that I reviewed was the impact of environmental conditions. All of the studies that I referenced here had athletes competing in temperate or even cool climates, and there's some understanding that hotter race environments can compound GI distress by virtue of worsening dehydration and further compounding the decrease in blood flow to the gut as additional blood flow to the skin is preferred in order to shed heat. So just know that when it's hot, the likelihood of GI upset goes up and be prepared to adapt. Now, I wanted to get some insight as to how individual athletes can take some of this information and utilize it when racing, specifically by bringing in one of those nutrition professionals. And so I've asked to return to the podcast my friend Alex Larson, who is a nutritional consultant and coach and does triathlon and running herself and has a lot of expertise here. So Alex, welcome back to the TriDoc Podcast. Thank you for being here. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me again. It is absolutely my pleasure. Um, I knew when I was researching this subject that this would be something that would be right up your alley. And uh, I was especially happy to see you put up uh, an Instagram post this week from the inside of a porta potty <laughs> talking about race day GI distress. And so I knew. <laughs> you know, I've reached a whole new level of dedication to my Instagram. Yeah, I, I, I very much approved of that. I loved it. Um, so. I want to ask you, you know, given all of this information that I've just sort of presented, this idea that what you eat is as important as how much you eat, what are your recommendations for athletes who may have experienced GI distress in the past? What kinds of foods do you suggest that they use? And I, I don't mean carbohydrates versus protein. I mean specifics. Like, what do you tell someone to take in during a race? During the race itself. So well, every athlete's a little bit different, um, especially for triathlon. I, it Well, on the bike, I like to do kind of a blend of both some hydration mixes and um, other options, whether that's gels or waffles or energy chews. Um, sometimes a little bit of real food can be helpful there too, just from the standpoint of like um, offsetting flavor fatigue. And so giving them a little bit of variety that way. Um, but I like, I like using hydration mixes on the bike because it's kind of a three for one. You get both a good dose of carbohydrates. It usually gets digested really quickly. You get a good dose of sodium and you're keeping yourself hydrated as well. And all of those things are really key to um, preventing GI issues. Yeah, it's been my experience as well that mixing hydration, uh, nutrition, as well as some solids has gone a long way to keeping my stomach satisfied as well as calm. Um, do you have uh, any scientific understanding of why that really makes a big difference for people? Um, I mean, I guess like when I, you were reading about you know the research studies, you know carbohydrates are the best fuel. They they mitigate and offset GI distress. Like that makes sense to me. And if you think about it from the standpoint of like liquid carbs, like in that hydration mix, mixed with some sodium, like all of those things, you know, going into the stomach are going to get tolerated a lot better versus just taking like 
straight up some gel without any liquid in it. So sometimes just having it diluted a bit with some water and with some salt can really help um, prevent some of those, you know, like nausea, upset stomach, or, you know, any of those, you know, diarrhea, those types of things. Um, it really can benefit you that way in making sure that you're feeling good throughout the race. And that was something that was mentioned in some of the studies. I didn't uh, mention it here. I have talked about it before, but the concentration of carbohydrate is really important. You shouldn't exceed uh, certain concentrations because that can start dragging fluid into the gut and cause bloating and diarrhea and abdominal cramping. So you really have to keep that concentration below a certain threshold. So when you're counseling athletes, what do you tell them in terms of what they're taking in? What should be the maximum concentration of carbohydrate in any kind of hydration drink? And then how many calories per hour do you advise people to try and target? Yeah. So as far as the carbohydrate concentration per hour, um, for long distance races, like 70.3s Ironmans, you can go up to like 60 to 90 grams of carb per hour. Um, I've seen some athletes that have gone above and beyond 90, but as far as the research goes, we find that 90 is kind of the max for most athletes and where they feel comfortable and not start having any, you know, overload of carbohydrates and having GI issues. So um, that would be my recommendation there. Um, though I will say more and more, I'm seeing some of like the higher level athletes that are really pushing the envelope in terms of calories an hour. So, you know, 90 grams of carb an hour would be 360 calories, but there's, and not that, you know, I'm recommending that we do what the pros do, but there's some pro athletes that are consuming 500 calories an hour out there and they're doing really, really well, um, performance wise. You know, we've, there's been some research studies that have looked at Ironman athletes, how many calories are they consuming per hour? And, um, the ones that are, you know, consuming those higher levels tend to be faster. So that's kind of been an interesting thing on my end of what I'm looking into with some of my higher level athletes is can we push the envelope with calories and even see better performance for them? Can you train to take more calories? I know a lot of people ask that question and think that it's possible. Uh, And I've always wondered myself, can you, can you actually train your gut to handle more calories per hour? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that our bodies are very highly adaptable. So, um, you know, I hear from some athletes who tend to underfuel and they're like, I could never consume that much. And then we work together. And next thing you know, they're loving their performance at 90 grams of carbon hour and they feel really great. They go into the run really well fueled. And, um, you know, at first kind of that limiting mindset of like, I could never eat that much. But then once we work their way up there and they've trialed it really well, they have confidence in that, you know, the sky's the limit in in terms of like um, what your body can handle, but you do have to do it gradually and kind of figure out how does your body work best. Some, some people just have more finicky stomachs and just can't do that. But others, you know, tend to be a little bit more tolerant. Now, just because you can, does that mean you should? I mean, a pro athlete is likely pushing the kind of intensity where 500 calories an hour is enough or or not even enough, but it it makes sense. I mean, for an age grouper, maybe they don't want to push to 500 calories an hour because that's going to exceed their actual needs, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, every athlete is a little bit different. So for someone that might consume, let's say, like 60 grams of carbon hour, and they at the level that they're performing, that works really well for them. But obviously, with nutrition and athletes, it's highly individualized. So everyone's a little bit different, um, which is why, you know, working with a dietitian can be really helpful or just really being mindful and documenting your nutrition as you go through training to figure out what feels best to you is a, is a good road to go. So Alex, when you listen to this piece and you hear um, this information, I gather none of it comes as a huge surprise to you, but are there any takeaways that you have that maybe I didn't mention that you think are important for athletes to take away from this uh, research? Um, I think the main takeaway is that um, (laughs) we still don't have all the answers, uh, especially because like we've, I mean, even when I was in school and I still have, I mean, I still have a lot of the sports nutrition textbooks. I have one clinical sports nutrition textbook that they has an entire chapter on GI issues with athletes. Like it's 
a common problem. I mean, I've seen stats anywhere from nine, 80 to 90% of endurance athletes have experienced GI issues um, during training or during races. I mean, it's just so common, but it's so highly individualized, which I think is why there's still no answers. Every person is a little bit different. Um, so kind of working through some of the common factors of things that contribute to it and eliminating those and really kind of dialing, dialing in what's causing the issue and working around that, I think is the best road to go when it comes to this topic. Well, um, that is uh, an excellent final point, and I think we'll leave it at that. Alex Larson, thank you so much for joining me to discuss uh, this a little bit further. I think it's a topic that will likely come back uh, in the future because, as you said, so many athletes suffer from this, and we just don't really have a great sense of what's causing it or how to fix it for everyone because, as you said, I think it's so individualized. Alex, where can uh, people find you? Uh, You're a very entertaining Instagram, and, of course, uh, if they want to know more about you, your uh, nutrition coaching? Yeah, so I am at Alex Larson Nutrition on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. I've got a private Facebook community as well with a bunch of athletes where we talk about nutrition. Um, and then my website is alexlarsonnutrition.com. Awesome. And I'll put all those links in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for being here. And uh, I'll look forward to having you back when we do our nutrition episode sometime in the future. Looking forward to it too. Thanks, Jeff. My guest on the podcast today is my friend and my colleague, Juliet Hockman. Juliet grew up in New England, playing lots of different sports, finally settling on field hockey, basketball, and rowing in high school. Now, I should interrupt to say that this is going to be a lengthy introduction, and deservedly so, as you're about to find out, because Juliet is really one of the most amazing people I know. Uh, Juliet spent a lot of time in the boathouse, more so, in fact, than in class while at college, and she learned a tremendous amount there about teamwork and leadership and was a keen observer of her coach's approach to building a nationally ranked rowing powerhouse. In the summer between her junior and senior year at Harvard, she she competed in the Olympics in Seoul, Korea as the youngest member of the U.S. rowing team. After earning her degree in Chinese studies, she she started a nonprofit that recruited college, college athletes to coach in South Africa's black townships, ran teaching programs across Southern Africa, went to Stanford Business School, married, worked with refugees on the North Korean-Chinese border, raised two sons and two dogs, enjoyed stints at Nike, Mercy Corps, and Friends of the Children, moved her family five times across 24 time zones to support her husband's career, served on school and nonprofit boards, coached four different youth sports, learned Dutch, started a blog, a travel service, and a consulting practice, built a career as a project manager, and announced the opening ceremonies for the 2014 World Rowing Championships in Amsterdam. I'm about halfway done. In 2014, Juliet returned to competitive sports, first as a tennis player and then as a triathlete. She quickly remembered how much she loved racing and competing, both as an athlete and as a mentor and coach. In 2017, she started working with life sport coach and founder Lance Watson, and later that year, she started the BAT Women, B-A-T Women, a high-performance women's triathlon team in Oregon. Excited to take it one step further, she earned her USAT coaching certification and started coaching while working with LifeSport as both a coach and as a partner on new business development and operations. She's loved her life as Athlete 2.0, winning age group world championships in sprint duathlon and Ironman 70.3, as well as national titles in duathlon, triathlon, and aquabike. And that is where I came into the story because I got to meet Juliet when I started working with LifeSport and rapidly realized that she was joining this little stable that I have of amazing women who I have somehow been incredibly fortunate to surround myself with. Um, And uh, I'm very excited that Juliet and uh, one of my closest friends, Kelly Poir, are going to meet in St. George later this year at the World Championships. But for now, I have got Juliet all to myself to (laughs) introduce to all of you uh, here today on the podcast. Juliet, thanks for taking some time to chat. Thank you. Are we done yet? <laughs> I, we're, we're done with the introduction, but we're okay. not done yet. We got a ways to go. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor. Well, it's all mine. Uh, Juliet, I have, my first question is not simple, but it's sort of simply asked, and that is, where do you get your drive? 
you know, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that question. It, it is just part of, of how I grew up. I think my family was move, always moved very fast. Um, my mom never sits down. My dad was always working on projects or working at work or doing whatever it was. It was always just sort of the expectation that, you know, you only had 60 seconds in every minute, so you better fill every single one. Um, and it was just always the expectation and, and the model that, you go and you do things, you fill your life, you, you set big goals, you chase them, you work really hard. Um, and that's what makes life exciting is, is filling, is filling it up. Uh, so I, I guess I always just thought that was the norm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It, it's interesting. You know, I, you always read, uh, of, uh, you know, these, these habits of highly effective people or whatever, highly effective habits of people. I don't even know what they are, but, and then, you, you know, you, you hear about how people who succeed do certain things. Uh, and, and, I, and I always sort of think that's lip service, but then since I've met you, I realize you do all of them. You have, you have lists, you have goals that you, you actually mark down and you, you actually have in all of your goals, you have steps that you've written down that you need to achieve to do all of them. You have post-its with all of these things. It's, <laughs> it's, it's remarkable. Where, where did all of these things come from? Like, did you read a book to figure out how to do all these things or, or like, how did you piece together the means to, to, to get these tools that have made you so successful? I think they were just developed over time. And I think honestly, athletics being involved in sports, from a very early age at all different levels, you know, school sports, um, obviously, you know, when I got into rowing, it became more and more kind of nationally ranked sports. They were developed over time very organically. Um, and it wasn't until boy, probably about 10 years ago, probably that I realized that there was actually some process to what I was doing that could be really effective for other people as well. Um, I remember when I was training for the Olympic team and I, I was 21 or 20, I was very young compared to the rest of the women who were training. I was the only one still in college and training for this enormous goal of making the team and representing the U S was, was terrifying. I mean, it was just terrifying. And the only way that I knew how to handle it was to break it down into smaller bite-sized chunks that I could just achieve on a daily basis. So rather than looking you know, three months, four months, six months, a year, two years down the road and thinking, wow, I really want to make the Olympic team more than almost life itself. Um, I would just break down, break it down into, okay, what do I have to do tomorrow? Because otherwise it was too big and I would keep me up at night and it would, it would almost move me to tears and, and just so how badly I wanted this thing, but to break it down to what I just had to do tomorrow to stay in the game, to continue to be competitive, to stay at selection camp or wherever I was during the training cycle. Um, it, it just made it that much. It just made it easier. All I have to do is go out and execute tomorrow. All I have to do is get through this one workout and do the very best I can. And what does that look like? And what does that feel like? And then if I can do that effectively, then I can move on to the next day. And if you sort of blow that up as a, as a metaphor for life or as an operating manual for life, then you can break down any huge goal. How are we going to feed refugees on the North Korean border? Oh my God, against <laughs> that regime? You got to be kidding me. But if you break it down into little pieces, you can actually find, oh no, we only have to do this. And then we do this. And then we do this. And all of a sudden we're feeding thousands of refugees on the North Korean border. So it, it's just a, a model that has worked. And like so many examples that we can point to and that you can point to, you know, the lessons that we learn through training, regardless of whatever you're training for, can absolutely carry over to everything else um, that we do in the rest of our lives. So I think it was, it wasn't a book or a, you know, a particular sort of savant that I followed. It was more just trying different things as I went along and thinking, Oh no, this can work. You know, this, this, this is achievable. This is how I get from, from A to Z. So help me as a, you know, okay, I'm an athlete and I want to run because I, I, you know, I've always marveled and admired the way you do that you do it so well uh but like i'm an athlete and i want to run an hour 30 half marathon as part of my half ironman uh you know and now i run 135 so i got to get that five minutes um you know how, how do you, you know, i can imagine i can envision myself you know some of the things that i would need to do to get those you know to write those things down but 
you know, for me, it's like, okay, I need to go out and execute every workout for sure. But, you know, sometimes an athlete doesn't necessarily know what those steps are. So how do you uh, kind of come to that to, to understand what those goals are? And it doesn't have to be this specific task. But if you have a task in front of you, a goal in front of you, how do you break it down to the achievable points if you're not necessarily sure what they are? Right. No, it's a good question. I think that the number one thing you have to do is kind of get smart on, on the different, what do you need to know to get to that goal? So to use another athletic example for the world championships in 2017, it's draft legal. It's a duathlon, right? So that means I have to learn how to do a draft legal race, which for most triathletes is, is very new. I mean, we don't do draft legal. Um, so what do I have to learn to do? I have to learn to, um, I have to learn how to race draft legal on my bike. Like, what does that mean? Um, I have to learn how to, um, work with other people, both on the run and the bike. I have to learn how to, um, run a really first fast 5k. This is all to get to the achievable goal of winning the world championships, right? So your example of how do I run a 130 half marathon, I'm using the example, how do I win this particular world championships? I'm breaking it down into all the different pieces that I need to excel at to get that bigger goal. Um, now I had never raced a draft legal race in my life, right? So the world championships are in August, starting in April, I'm looking around my community to look for draft legal races and I'm getting into them as often as I can so I can learn how to do it. So the point is, I'm using this as an example. The point is, is that first you have to kind of get smart on, um, the smaller components you need to do to achieve that goal. And that might mean seeking help from other people. It might mean reading. It might mean combing the internet. It might mean getting those physical experiences, et cetera. Because oftentimes, even the goal of, of running a 130, that seems, I mean, that's a very challenging thing to do. I'm not um, undermining that. But on the face of it, it seems simple. I just have to go run a 130. Okay, well, do you ha- do you have the right do you have a coach who can help you do that? Who can lay out a training plan? Do you have the right shoes? Do you have the right work environment that allows you to have the time to do that? Are you doing the right combination of workouts? What does that mean in combination of workouts? Looks like you better do some research on that. So it's, again, it's breaking down, breaking it down into pieces and getting expert on um, the different pieces to get there. Now you can't get expert on everything. So again, training for the Olympic team you know, as a, a rower basically requires, you know, four things. It's, 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 it's aerobic endurance, it's raw strength, it's technical ability on the water and it's mental toughness, right? Okay. So at age 20, I am never going to be the most technically adept athlete out there because there've been women who have rowed for 10 more years than I have. I'm never going to be the biggest. That's just genetics, right? So that means I had two buckets that I had to excel at. I had to be the fittest. Okay. That I can achieve. And I had to be the most mentally tough that I can achieve too. And so you have to also identify which buckets you are actually capable of, of excelling in and just trying to bring the other ones along with it to be able to achieve that goal. Um, so I think it's, 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 it, again, it goes back to breaking it down into pieces and figuring out the different elements that you need to get smart on. And that might mean getting help. It might mean training differently. It might mean adjusting your life. It might mean a whole bunch of different factors, but it, you're right. It's not just going out day after day. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to run. I'm going to run the same thing. I'm going to run harder. I'm going to, you know, uh, it, it's 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 getting a little bit more analytical and forensic than that. Uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Great. It's uh, it's something that I've always uh, noticed and and really um, found quite remarkable about you. And I, I I think that's you just explained it so well. And it's so applicable to sport. It's applicable to life in general. And uh, I think it's it's really it's it's great. Um, I, I want to talk about something else that you and I have talked about a lot since we've met, and that is confidence. Um, <laughs> Ever since I met you, you know, I've, I've had this sense that you just exude confidence. And now that I know you so much better, I recognize that it's not that you exude confidence. It's that you, gosh, what is, I, I don't even know what it is. It, it, you definitely have a belief in self, but it, it's not that it's innate. You, you at the same time, 
uh, you and I have talked about imposter syndrome and, and, and this is going to be hard to do succinctly for my listeners because you and I have a much better understanding of each other than they will. But, um, I, I think the story that, that kind of got me thinking about this with you was when you know, the first time I heard your story about the Olympics, about how you just said, I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the Olympic team. And it was, it was such a, a, to me, a brash and bold statement to make and suggested to me a level of hubris and confidence that I just couldn't imagine ever having myself. So tell me a bit, like I've asked you this many times, tell, tell me a bit where you get that and, and how others can, can kind of grab that because you've done it again, right? You, you said, I'm going to be a world champion in the duathlon and I'm going to be a world champion at 70.3 and you have executed on all of those things. So where do people get the same kind of confidence as you? Well, I think you're. I, I think you're. Uh, there's a little bit of revisionist history here because um, I don't. I don't think I ever, ever said in my early 20s I'm going to make the Olympic team. I think that was a super secret goal that I had way down in the pit of my stomach. And in fact, my two college roommates who I roomed with for all four years, who were very much part of this journey, they weren't even allowed to say the word Olympics. I mean, it was like taboo in our rooming group. Um, so, and the same thing, you know, later in life with, with the, the world championships, um, I don't think I ever said I'm going to be a world champion. I think it was more a very quiet, I really, really want to win this race, or I really, really want to make this team. Right. And so what do I need to do to get there? Um, you know, I would, we have the world championships coming up again this year in October at 70.3. And I am the last person to say, oh, I'm going to go win the world championships. I really hope I have a good race that day. <laughs> um, and I'm doing everything I know how to do to get there um, and to stand in that starting shoot, knowing that I've done absolutely everything I could to put down the best performance I can. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that for me or for anybody to say, well, I'm going to make the Olympic team or I'm going to <laughs> you know, win a world championship is is brash and overconfident and, and uh, sort of displays some hubris. So I just want to correct that before we start. <laughs> However, I will answer your question. Um, you know, I think that I actually, I, I can speak for myself when I say that I don't feel like a particularly confident person. Um, you know, my dad has this great expression. Um, oh, now I'm forgetting it, but it's, it's um, not always sure, but never in doubt. <laughs> So, so, you know, I think that I have as many self doubts about my athletic performance or my work performance or anything else, you know, that I think anybody would, to be honest. Um, I think that, and I think that most people do. I think that the athletes that I've had the great pleasure of working with, you know, people have confident days and people have less confident days. Um, and that's very normal. Um, and I think that sometimes the people who present with the most confidence may be the least confident. Um, it's kind of an act. Anyway, I think that, you know, the confidence that is there, having talked my way around this question, um, comes from just repeat good performances. And I don't mean performances on the race course. I mean performances every day in every session. So every time you go out and you prove to yourself that you can do a hard set, um, that you can accomplish what is put forth for you um, in your everyday training schedule. You just get a little bit more confidence that you can do hard things. Because really, all of these things are about doing hard things. Rowing is a really hard thing. Triathlon is a really hard thing. So every time you can go out and execute another good, hard bike workout or make it through a long swim set or finish that long run, even when you don't want to, um, or it hurts a lot, or you everything is screaming that there's so much better things you could do with your time. Um, every time you complete one of those, you just get a little bit more and it just, it adds up. And so when you get out there on a day when it really matters um, in a big race or, or in any race, in your local race, whatever it is, then you have that weight of success behind you of completing hard things. Um, and so when you, when, you know, when it's important, you know that you've done the work, um, that you've, you know what that feels like, that you know you can go fast. And 
kind of whatever, whoever else is out there, that's just kind of whoever shows up on that day. <laughs> I mean, you that's almost irrelevant. You know, oftentimes people say, well, do you know who your competition is? And I probably, I mean, I know a couple people, um, but I don't spend a ton of time on it because it, as long as I finish the race, knowing that I have done the, just the best race that I could possibly execute on that day, everything else kind of falls out the way it falls out. There's going to be, I can't control who shows up at the starting line or in what shape they show up. Um, and so when people start to worry a lot about the competition and how they're going to rank and all these things, and I sort of say, you know, you need to get into the starting shoot. And I absolutely believe this for myself, knowing that there was nothing else you could have done to get there. And that's not just completing the training. That's all the things. It's getting the sleep and having the support that you need and, and eating the right food and having the right equipment to the best of your abilities. All of those things. You need to stand there and know, oh gosh, you know, if only I hadn't bailed on that workout a week ago, or if only I had done a little bit more training over the winter. You don't want to be thinking that, right? And so again, that's a, a form of confidence is just knowing you've done the hard work. You've done everything you could do to get there. And then the confidence of all that hard work is almost inevitably going to parlay into a good performance. Yeah, the race doesn't begin at the start line. The race begins <laughs> the day you sign up. The race begins the day you sign up. And then all the stuff that you do leading up to that start line is what layers on, you know, day after day, the ability to perform on the given day. And the race, I mean, the, the hard work for the race, I keep telling my athletes the same thing as you just said much more eloquently, which is that, you know, the hard work for the race is getting there. And then once you get there, it's just a long training day that you have put in all the effort for and preparation for leading up to that moment. So, um, yeah, I, I totally get that. And the, the, you're right. You'd never want to show up and think, oh, I should have done more uh, or I could have done more. Not I should have done more because not everybody has the ability to have done more before. But if you could have and you didn't, then that's a regret you don't want to have. Uh, I think that's really well said. Um you have had success at, at varying distances, uh, you know, 70.3 and sprint. That's, that's two very different kinds of races. Uh, what do you attribute your ability to succeed in, in those kinds of very different kinds of races? One necessitating such speed and the other necessitating, uh, you know, speed and endurance. Well, I mean, in, in athletic life 1.0, I was a rower right now. Rowing race is six minutes. So the fact that they call a sprint triathlon, which generally takes, you know, an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half, a sprint event just cracks me up because <laughs> it's not a sprint event. I mean, it's definitely a different uh, energy zone than a 70.3, but it's not a sprint event. Um, you know, I think like a lot of triathletes, I started at that sprint distance because that's where we start and that's what the local races are. And then you sort of, you tip, dip your toe into Olympic and you kind of see how that goes. And then you know, the jump from Olympic to 70.3 actually isn't that huge. The swim is practically the same. And for us non-swimmers, that's the big thing. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of it is that progression that, that if you have the time to go through, you know, building your base and building, um, building your knowledge. It, obviously a lot of it is good coaching. I have an excellent coach who's absolutely led me, you know, Lance Watson is not, not messed up yet. Let's put it that way. He's done a fantastic job. Um, I started with him in 2017 with the goal, hey, I really would like to try to do well at the World Championships. Never said I wanted to win it. Um, and uh, then as uh, I wanted to sort of test the field at 70.3, because that seems like that's where all of the the excitement was, like Ironman. I'd never done an Ironman. That kind of felt like the show. Um, so did that for a few years. And actually this year, I have both. I have the Sprint World uh, Championships and uh, 70.3. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. Um, I, I think, I don't know, you know, genetically where I fall out in terms of fast twitch versus slow twitch. I, I don't really care. Um, I think a lot of it is the training program that you implement, the work that you do, um, and then just showing up on race day and realizing that the two races feel really, really different and you have to be prepared. You know, one is a, lung exploding, heart busting, collapse on the finish line type of, you know, feeling. And the other is, oh my God, my skeleton's going to fall apart type of feeling. Um, <laughs> and so you just have to kind of know that the two of them are different and mentally you have to be prepared for, for that difference. <laughs> um, 
you've been an enormously successful and popular coach. What is your philosophy, uh, your coaching philosophy? Well, I think probably the biggest thing is that, you know, every athlete is an individual, right? They're all so different. They're different people. They come with different backgrounds, different skill levels, different experiences, different life stresses. Um, and so, and within that context, they're trying to be the best athlete they can be. And that goal in and of itself, whether they're training for a sprint triathlon or for 70.3 or the world championships, it doesn't matter. For that individual, that event they're training for is their Olympics. And it's really important. And so I think to give that athlete the very best of myself as a coach in terms of the best training plan I can put together, as much attention as I can afford um, to that goal is they deserve it. Like they deserve it. They're putting in the time and the resources and the commitment and the mental energy and everything else to running their first 5K, running their first 70.3, going to the world championships, whatever it is. And that's all really important. Um, and and I, so I think that's the first thing. I, I think the next thing is that I just, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I, I just think that humans can do hard things. And I think that a lot of times athletes come in through the door and they don't know that yet about themselves. They don't know yet that they can do hard things because no one's ever asked them to right? No one's ever said, hey, I believe that you can do this set or that you can do this really hard ride or you can do this hard run. Um, and, but if it's on your calendar, right? Of course you look at it with huge trepidation. You think, oh my God, you know, that's going to be really hard. I don't think I can do that. Right. But she thinks I can do it. So maybe I can. And then you go out and the athlete goes out and do it. And, 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 you know, nine times out of 10, they can. And so again, that's adding to that like that confidence, right? That mental toolkit, that physical toolkit that will carry them to the next little level and the next little level. And so I think, but I think sometimes it takes somebody on the outside saying, no, you can do this, right? I'm putting this out here because I believe in you, right? I know that works for me as an athlete. And I know that works for, for my athletes when I put that out there. Um, and then I guess, you know, we also talked about this is, is, that all of these things that we are learning through being an athlete, you know, confidence, the value of hard work, setting, setting hard goals, managing your time, including others, managing disappointment, all of these things are directly applicable to the rest of our lives. Right. And I remember when I started this program in South Africa, working with these um, township kids who were really living at the bottom. Right. I mean, that was, that was like the whole idea. That was how we sold the, we raised money <laughs> for this program by convincing people that this is the skills that we were teaching. This is not just about coaching a bunch of poor kids, right? This was teaching these skills, but even in, in a completely different environment, which is, you know, the United States and certainly more affluent than black townships, you know, these, these skills are still learned. And I think that, that like, that's an important part of all of this as well. Um, and I guess the final thing, you know, and you've heard me use this kind of hashtag before is I'm a rower. I don't go anywhere without seven other people or eight other people in the boat. Right. And so this whole idea of just really building the boathouse and, and to the extent that I can connect people with other people to help them train more effectively, ask hard questions, learn more about the sport and let's face it, I mean, a three hour, four hour ride is a lot more fun with somebody else, right? Than it is all by yourself, particularly in the rain. So, um, so to the extent that we can build that boathouse and build that group of people with the common goal of just trying to be the best athlete and the best human that we can be, then hard things are so much easier if you do them with other people. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that came very much, that was very much informed I was very much informed with that whole concept as a rower and triathlon is a little bit more of an individualistic sport, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and so to the extent that we can build that community, which is what we're trying to do, you and I are trying to do this at life sport. Right. And, and it's been phenomenal over the last couple of years, even during the pandemic and how that's grown and how athletes know each other. And that's awesome. Like that is going to make all of us faster, more connected, um, more durable, et cetera. So 
Yeah. Long answer. Yeah. No, it was a great answer. It was a great answer. Uh, my last question for you is uh, what does the future hold for Juliet Hawkman? I know uh, this year you've mentioned already you're doing the Sprint Worlds and you've got the 70.3 Worlds. Uh, I know you've told me that you don't have any aspirations to do an Ironman, but uh, what, what are you uh, looking forward to besides those two events? Right. Um, well, this year I had four kind of big races, right? Oceanside's already gone by and then, uh, Oceanside 70.3 Oceanside and then yeah, Sprint Worlds in Montreal. Um, and then Oregon 70.3 that's right here in my own hometown practically. So that's just a fun, fun day full of great people. And then yes, world championships in October in St. George. Um, you know, I think that those are sort of the, the anchors or the, the placeholders in 2022. Um, one of the great, parts of the year, I think for any athlete, frankly, if, particularly if you're on a North American race cycle is when you get to the fall and you finish that last key event and you get to sit down, you get a little bit of a break, you're not training quite so hard and you get to kind of imagine the future and what that might look like. And for some athletes, they really like rinse, repeat. They want to do the same thing. It feels good to them. You know, that's where they are. Um, and that's fine. I really encourage my athletes and I try to do the same thing to look at the next year and think, what's going to be different? Like what, what is going to be new? What's going to challenge me? What's going to push me outside my comfort zone? Um, what would make me a better athlete and a better coach? Right. So, uh, I mean, I'm not at the fall of 2022 yet, but I would imagine a 2023, which might include gravel racing, never done it, right. Live in a great state to do it, have a nice bike to do it. That's just sitting very lonely in my garage. So, um, you know, I think that constantly, uh, I know that constantly challenge myself, taking the risk, trying new things, failing, getting up, doing it again. Um, my kids always laugh that, you know, that one of the best races they ever saw me do was I did a cross country ski race and I was absolutely DFL. I mean, there was nobody behind me. It was so awful. <laughs> um, and they, I thought that was great because that's not a place where they typically see me, but, and so they remind me of it quite frequently, but, um, but uh, like things like that, like, yeah, maybe ski races. I mean, just trying new things, challenging yourself, falling down, getting back up again, um, learning the things as you go along the way. Uh, so I think that, you know, athletically, that's what the next six months, year, whatever looks like. But that's the fun of the fall is sort of looking at the next year and thinking, I really want to rent a trailer and go and do a three-day gravel race, six hours away. And I don't know, something like that. That just seems really appealing, (laughs) Um, but it'll be something new and different. Yeah. It's not the result that counts. It's the process and and how you respond to that result. Right. I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, pithy sayings, but they are very true and they are what guide us and motivate us as athletes to keep coming back. So yeah. Yeah. And, uh, And just, I guess one more thing on that is, you know, I think that if you can't learn, there is no linear element to being an athlete, right? It is, you have to be able to learn how to fall down and get back up again. You know, I think, I think it was Kipling who said, you know, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and meet those twin imposters, just the same, right? I mean, it's, you have to learn how to fall down and get back up again. And unless you're pushing yourself to try new things, um, how are you going to do that? (laughs) And that might be trying new things, like trying more difficult things within what you're doing, or it might be just trying something completely different. I mean, I took, I, before I got into triathlon more seriously, I played tennis for two years. I'm not that great a tennis player, <laughs> but I certainly tried really hard and fell down a lot, got beaten a lot. So I think that it just makes you, it makes you a better, a better athlete, a better person. It, it reminds you of humility. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would, I think just that's sort of my parting salvo is just continuing to challenge yourself and, and try try new shit (laughs) well i can't i can't think of a better way to finish than that juliet hawkman world champion for the 70.3 hopefully uh newly crowned in the sprint uh, coming up uh but for now uh my dear friend and colleague at life sport coaching thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you jeff thank you and that's it for another episode the Try Talk podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives for previous episodes at TryDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on the episode today, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com. 
Alternatively, you could submit questions or comments at the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. You could join by answering three simple questions. I'll gain you admission almost immediately, and you can join the conversation there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.